Carol Malone, your host. Thank you for joining us today. Neighborhood Spotlight is sponsored by Neighborhood Connections and the City of Cleveland Cable Television Equity in the Arts Fund. Neighborhood Spotlight showcases citizens making positive contributions to their neighborhoods. My guest today is Dr. Charles S. Maudlin, Jr., the Metro Health Hospital Medical Director of the Office of Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity the first person ever to hold this position. He is one of only a few African-American kidney transplant surgeons in the United States and the only one who is a urologist. He grew up in Newcastle, Indiana, a mostly white rural community with a black population of less than 250 people out of 18,000 at the time. His father, Charles S. Maudlin Sr., worked for Firestone and his mother, Grace Maudlin, was an elementary school educator. Both parents were very active in their community and church. Dr. Maudlin took the lessons from the mentorship of his parents and other family members to heart in pursuing his goals. He graduated from Newcastle High School, where he played trumpet in the school band. From there, he graduated from Northwestern University in 1983 and Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in 1987. Historical trailblazer national leader in community outreach and engagement, health advocate, health disparities leader, educator, mentor, author, program innovator, public speaker, kidney transplant surgeon, urologist, musician, tomato gardener. His thoughtful style and how he deals with people who need his help reminds you of those old school country doctors or back in the day when doctors came to your home. He sincerely cares about the health of people in our community. His respectful and kind demeanor make him approachable and easy to talk to, and that is a very important quality for breaking down barriers in health disparities. Dr. Maudlin has been featured numerous times on television, radio, in print, social mediums, and local podcasts, and has authored numerous scientific publications and book chapters on urology and kidney transplantation. In 2007, he received the MLK Greater Cleveland Partnership Community Service Award. 2011, the Atlanta Post named him one of the top 21 black doctors in America. 2015, he was recognized as the Black Professionals Association's Black Professional of the Year. 2016, he received Cleveland Crane's Healthcare Heroes Award. He has served on the Ohio Commission on Minority Health and in 2020 was appointed to the Ohio Governor's Minority COVID-19 Strike Force, as well as serving on numerous boards. Currently, Dr. Maudlin lives in the historic community of Shaker Heights, Ohio, with his family and is a member of the Neighbor Up Network. So welcome to Neighbor Up Spotlight, Dr. Maudlin. Yeah, it's a great honor to be with you. And uh, yeah, thank you for that introduction. It wasn't necessary, all of that. <laughs> well, that's okay. That, that's what I do. <laughs> That's how my show is laid out. So, you know, you've done a lot of wonderful things. And so I just wanted our audience to know. So now we're going to get started because we've got a lot to cover. So uh, what was life like growing up in Newcastle, Indiana? You know, when, when, I, when I think back, um, you know, I, I reminisce and, and, you know, some people always ask, well, if you could go back, would you go back and, and 
you know, that, that, that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate, you know, what is going on now, you know, in time, my family and yeah. friends. But, but if I had a chance to go back, I, I would go back in a, in a heartbeat um, with, with the hopes that I would still have the same children, you know, <laughs> you know, um, you know, in, in the future. But, 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 but I say that because, you know, even though there were many challenges uh, that, that we faced, as especially, you know, people of color, African-Americans growing up in this small central Indiana town, uh, the, it was a simpler time, almost, it, it seemed like. I mean, again, there, yeah. were, there were a lot of difficulties and challenges. We weren't as distracted as people are nowadays. I mean, there was no such thing as Twitter, Facebook, social media. Right. We didn't have cell phones. We had, I remember we had three channels on the TV. That's right, we did. Um, and initially, black and white. I remember when we first got our first color TV, uh, I think it was, what, 1968 or something like that. Yeah. But I, I would love to go back and, 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 you know, be with my parents, grandparents again, and, you know, just a simpler time, simpler yeah. time. Yeah. So now, how did your parents, siblings, extended family, and community shape who you have become today? So it's because of them who I am today. Um, you know, I, I, I always tell people that I was fortunate to have been born into a, a family with, with, you know, two loving parents. Uh, you know, both uh, my, my parents were there in the household growing up. They, they were both excellent role models. I had uh, four siblings. I'm, I'm the only boy. I have, you know, four uh, sisters. Yes. Um, they're all older, except there's one two years younger than me. But they, um, my, my parents both stressed the importance that we all acquire our education. You know, education, uh, achieving one's education is, is a, a way to a better uh, life. And, and, you know, yes. so, so my parents were great role models in terms of also demonstrating strong worth ethics, um, demonstration of the importance of being part of the community, giving back to the community, uh, being a servant leader. And again, I, I witnessed this growing up on, on a routine basis. We we all grew up in the church. It was our church was called Wiley United Methodist Church. Yes. And we, as a black community, we were very cohesive. We were very connected. We looked after one another. Um, we lived on the east end of town, and there was a west end of town. There were primarily two neighborhoods uh, where the majority of African Americans lived. But my, my father, actually, I'm the first uh, male from my family lineage to actually ever graduate high school. And my father was, you know, a great student in high school. But in 11th grade, he had to leave high school to, to enter the Navy at World War II. Yeah. Um, and that was very important. You know, both, both my parents were born in 1924, you know, the, the Great Depression era. Mm -hmm. And so it was incumbent on my father to, to leave high school, go into the Navy, because what he did, he was able to send back um, part of his salary, you know, the money for, from the Navy to, to help feed his family back yes. home. So after the Navy, he, uh, I think he was in the Navy for about seven years. He came back to Indiana, you know, married my, my mother. He's, he started working in the, the foundries, the factories, and he spent 28 years uh, working in one factory, Firestone. They closed the company. Um, moved out of state, out of the country, that kind of thing. And, you know, he lost a job there. Then he, you know, he did a lot of odd jobs, things like that. At some point he worked for the city. Um, and I can get into that, you know, some of the challenges he faced. Um, 
but again, you know, he never, he was always sub, uh, self-conscious, you know, in a way in the fact that he was never able to uh, achieve his, his uh, formal education. But I tell everybody he was one of the most brilliant men I, I've ever known. Yes. Uh, he, he would study the dictionary encyclopedia. He was well-read. He had a excellent vocabulary. My mother actually was the first black school teacher in the history of Henry County, Indiana. Yes. Newcastle is about 38 miles east of Indianapolis. Um, the county, uh, it's the county seat of Henry County. <clears throat> and my mother, she was, um, after she finished high school, she had a, a scholarship to go to Butler University in um, Indianapolis. But the scholarship only allowed her to go one year. After that, she couldn't afford it. And so mm-hmm. she had to drop out, go to work. She worked for what they called the finance center and, and they um i forget exactly what they did but i i believe they helped with the war effort but but also she always wanted to go back and finish her education so she had um four small kids at, at home my oldest sister had already uh you know gone you know was an adult at the time but she made the decision to go back to school she went to ball state teachers college night school yeah and she became a school teacher at the age of around 40 years old she went on to get her master's degree uh, in education, and she became the first um, black school teacher in Henry County, Indiana. And of course, with that came, came a lot of challenges, you know, yes. understandably so. Yeah, that's excellent. But, but I, I, I witnessed this. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, they were great role, role models to me. My, my grandmother Clara Hampton. I mean, she was a you know stal- the stalwart of the, the, the family, and then she helped take care of us. And, and it was just again remarkable times. I would go back there in a heartbeat if I had it an opportunity to get into a time machine. Yeah. <laughs> and I can relate to what you're talking about, too, because, you know, I always say my first word was probably not mom and dad. My first word was probably college. You know, both of my parents went to Alabama, okay. went to Alabama A&M. And my mother did the mm-hmm. same thing, too, when she was in her 40s. My mother went back to Kent State and, and drove every night and ended up getting her degree from Kent State and, and continued to yeah. teach. So, so I, I know what you're talking about, but you also touched on your, that's which is my next question is, how did your grandmother, Clara Hampton, influence you to want to help people? Yeah. Well, see, I'll say real quick, you know, um, in terms of going to night school, you, yeah. you got to remember back in the 60s and they, they didn't have all these paved roads and no, you know, that, yes. street lights. Yes, and all that's stuff. right. Yeah, I remember and it was very dangerous. Also, yeah, yeah, I remember my mother telling me that because her and two of her other friends they would ride down to Kent State. And you're right, I remember my mother commenting on going on those little two lane highways, you know, to take classes down at Kent State at night. You are absolutely correct. Very, very, very dangerous, especially for a black female. That, yes, you know, back then mm-hmm. to be on the road at night and and just uh, you're right. You know, I'm, I'm looking back in Central Indiana. I mean, I grew up 38 miles from the home of the Grand Wizard. I'm sure wow. many of your your audience may oh, yeah. know who or what the Grand Wizard was. It probably still exists today. You know, yeah. Who knows? But, Ku Klux Klan. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, my grandmother, Claire Hampton, she lived to be 103 years old. She was born in 1888. Um, there, there are not many people still around that say they know somebody who was born or lived in the 1800s. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, but again, she was about, she stood about six feet tall. Um, my, my mother was raised on the farm, Carthage, Indiana, and around Rushville, you know, again, near, near, near Indianapolis. The story is, you know, from what I heard um, them tell stories, my, my family used to, my, my, my mother's parents used to own about 100 acres of land, mm. farmland. You know, she, my mother actually said growing up they were never hungry. They had chickens and things like that. But they lost 
all of the property because they couldn't pay $28 oh. of property taxes. Oh. $28 of property taxes. I mean, Man. of course, it was some kind of a scam to get their, their property. Oh, so yeah. they lost everything. Yeah. But and she was very strong. Yeah, my, my, my grandmother and my mother were very strong. My father, yes. Yeah, that's happened to a lot of black families. I actually, unfortunately, fortunately, I'm still, I've, I've held on to one acre of land that's been passed down in our family since 1876. Yeah. I have all the receipts where my uncle paid oh. 50 cents a month for this land. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I still, and I, st- <clears throat> I pay the taxes of $6.50 on this land in Gainesville, Alabama every year. Amazing. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm and the thing old. is, you know, my grandmother, yeah, she, she, uh, but see, the thing is that that's, and, and it's great historically that you've maintained that property yes um you know i mean maybe does, does anybody live on the property at well, all or well, no? the, the last because it's really fun my parents wouldn't take me when i was younger because my father had two brothers that died of spiral meningitis and somehow he thought i would contract it but i did go that mm. be, go down in the 80s and and i do have to go back now with my daughter because so, someone has built a house i don't know if it's on my land or mm-hmm. a, a adjacent, a however it is, but uh, uh, I definitely need to go down now and see what's going mm-hmm. on because yeah, it, it actually sat next. It sat next. Just real quick story. 1987. I went down to see it for the very first time. Row with a cousin. My mother mm-hmm. made sure said go during the daytime hours. We get down there. Mm-hmm. There's little row houses. This is 1987 now. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we stop in the house. There's a black woman there in her 80s. What really just got to me. She was living in a, you know, little shotgun house up on yes. the stilts, dirt floor. Mm-hmm. 1987, she had a dirt floor, pump in the house, mm-hmm. outhouse in the back. And mm-hmm. I said, and no one, but I, and I took pictures of that. My uncle's house was still mm-hmm. standing. It's no longer standing now. But, you know, to answer your question, yeah, I do pay the taxes to maintain it and, and uh, mm-hmm. hopefully, and then pass it on to my daughter. Oh, yeah. You know? And I remember my grandmother going to my grandmother's house and, and, we would play down there. She would like help take care of us, you know, when my mother was, uh, you know, school. Um, and, but I remember actually in the backyard was an outhouse. Yep. <laughs> um, I remember the old fashioned ring, um, you know, washing machine, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of that. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember, um, the milkman coming, you know, mm-hmm. every week, bringing, bringing milk, mm-hmm. you know, cheese, that, that kind of stuff for eggs. Yep. Um, but when my grandmother, um, got older and, and see the thing is we, we remember her taking care of us, babysitting us, but we didn't realize actually how old she was at the time. She was like in her late seventies, eighties doing all of that. And we didn't realize, cause you know, we didn't make it easy for her. We, we were, <laughs> you know, raucous and, and jumping up and down on the bed and doing all that kind of crazy stuff. Yeah. But, but as she got older, as I matured, I was able to, I remember one Christmas vacation, my uh, nephew and I, he was actually um, six months older than me because my, my oldest uh, sister, half-sister, is like 16 and a half years older. So we, we kind of were kind of like brothers. Mm-hmm. But we, we, we spent our Christmas vacation like for a whole week with my grandmother taking care of her. Yeah. We would cook for her, you know, help, you know, uh, get her dressed, all this, all this kind of stuff. We were yeah. about 12 years old, yeah. something like that. Yeah. But, but it actually helped instill within my very fabric about, you know, the fact that I wanted to grow up and, and be a healthcare provider. I wanted to, I wanted to help take care of people. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah she suffered from arthritis. We would get her medications and, and, and things of that nature. So I, I, and then as she got older, she couldn't live by herself. She, we had to move her into our home. Yeah. 
And initially we lived down the street, but then we, we lived, uh, we moved maybe three miles away later on, but we would, she would live with us for a while. Then it, it became apparent that you know, with my mother working and, and, and nobody, you know, we really couldn't take care of her at home. We were forced to put her into a nursing home. Yeah, I know that was And hard. my mother would actually take me and my younger sister down there every day to the nursing home after she got off work and we would visit her. I would bring her water and she loved lemon candy, bring her, <laughs> we stop and get her lemon candy, yeah. wheel her down to the um, dining hall, help, help feed her, that kind of thing. Yeah. Eventually, I, I worked in a, um, I, one of my friend's um, mother was a head nurse at our hospital, and I, I got a job as an orderly, hospital orderly. That, that, you, don't, you don't ever hear of orderlies anymore. Yeah, you that, don't. It doesn't exist. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, so I got a chance to work as part of the nursing team. Um, one of my responsibilities, I mean, again, you don't see this anymore. We, we, we would give patients back rubs, you yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we would transport patients, you know, things like that. Uh, that, that was our, and so again, I got, I, th- this gave me additional exposure and um, it, it just kind of solidified in my mind. Again, I always loved studying biology, science, chemistry, yeah, uh, things of that nature. And, and so, you know, just, I gradually settled into, you know, wanting to become a doctor. I, I had to make a decision between going into medicine uh, versus music. At one point I was an Indiana All-State trumpet player. Oh, Awesome. Um, yeah, and, and so I had to actually sit down and decide, okay, should I pursue a career in music versus medicine? My trumpet instructor at the time told me, you know, he, he encouraged me to do medicine. He said, you know, music is too hard of a career path. I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're both, no, they're yeah, both so, challenging. <laughs> yeah. So I, I still play a little bit in the Shaker community band. It's, it's not, nothing like, you know, I don't have the talent that I used to have, uh, you know, interesting sidebar. So after I graduated high school, I had about, I don't know, five or six opportunities to, uh, after that, that summer, I graduated to, to play in Europe, um, either in symphonic bands or jazz bands or to be like in a uh, uh, drum and bugle corps. But, but a lot of these were opportunities to, to go tour in Europe for two or three weeks. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to do it because I couldn't pay the $750 tuition. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're talking three weeks in Europe for $750. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, you'll never see that price again. Yeah. <laughs> no, but the reason, I, yeah, the reason I bring that up is yeah. because 40 years later, yeah. my oldest daughter, Sarah, she went to the College of William and & Mary, and, and she was a talented uh, clarinetist. But they went on a um, European or United Kingdom tour and without me knowing, she went up to her um, wind ensemble director and asked if I could play Aww. in the trumpet section on the United <laughs> Kingdom tour. And he, and he said yes. And, and I was just, see, that, that moved me very much. Because, yeah, that's wonderful. Because 40 years later, I had a chance to play in Europe. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, I played third trumpet, of course. You know, I wasn't first, but, yeah. but I, yeah, I, it was really moving. It moved me to tears, the fact that she did that. But, but also the fact that the, the, the other college trumpet players welcomed me in and allowed me to sit with them and actually play. I remember the last song of the, um, of the tour, I stepped out and watched them from the audience because I wanted to see them from that vantage point. And, yes. and I, I, I stood up and, and I, I thanked them for providing me that opportunity 40 years later. Not many people get to have some an experience like that playing in London, you know, that's, that's 40 years later. Yeah. That, that's very, 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 very true. So, yeah. so now that you made the, dis, you made that decision to not go into music, but to go into medicine. So what influenced you to become a kidney transplant surgeon and a urologist? 
Yeah, so I'll tell you, some, sometimes at 3 in the morning, you know, <laughs> you, when you get that phone call to go into an emergency, sometimes you wonder, well, I should have gone into music. You know, but, <laughs> so, like, so when you're, like, in medical school, you're exposed to all of the different um, specialties, surgery, the surgical subspecialties, medical subspecialties, and you have an opportunity to do certain electives. And I uh, had an opportunity to, to, to do a urology elective. Not everybody knows what a urologist is. So yes. a urologist is a surgical subspecialist. Yes, yeah, so we're, we're surgeons. Um, but urology, the, the field of urology, it, it's the focus and concentration on the urinary tract, the kidneys, the bladder, um, the, the male prostate, the male external genitalia. Um, there, are certain, there are urologists who specialize uh, in oncology, cancer, stones, endourology, you know, minimally invasive reconstruction, pediatric urology. And there, there are a few uh, places, only a couple of places where urologists actually uh, perform kidney transplants. So when I was in medical school, junior medical, <clears throat> third year medical student as a junior, uh, is when we did our, our clinical rotations. And I had an opportunity to spend two weeks on the urology service at Evanston Hospital, which was one of Northwestern University's um, community hospitals. And I just, I, I loved um, the, the type of surgery. You know, urology is a, a mix of um, uh, diagnostics, uh, medical uh, diagnostics and, and surgical interventions. And I, I, I had a great uh, role model, um, a guy named Dr. James Holland, and I actually reference him in, in my book. I have a picture of him as a mentor of mine. And, and I always say, um, and I don't, I'm not trying to disparage this. I say this jokingly, uh, that the urologists were a lot nicer um, <laughs> than the general surgeons, you know. So, so yeah, so that, that, that's um, kind of why I gravitated. A bunch of nice, uh, and see, back then you'd say, you'd say a bunch of nice guys because it was all men. But yes. see, now, of course, it, you know, it, it's diversified, you know, probably 50% of trainees now are, are women, which oh, is great. Excellent. You know? yes. <clears throat> yes. But, um, yeah, so, no, it, it's, um, and, and it's important. I, t I tell students, I mentor a lot of students, I tell them all the time, listen, you know, I, I hear a lot of students before they even go to college, before they get to medical, they already know what type of doctor they want to be. I say, listen, you know, you want to keep an open mind because you, you need to be flexible. You may notice that you want to do something else once you start your, your medical your medical or surgical rotation. So you need to be open-minded. You know, don't fix yourself just to one particular specialty. I, I, I've even had third graders tell me, well, I want to be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> well, that, that, that's yeah. fine, but yes. keep, keep an open mind. You, you may, at that young age, you may not even want to go into medicine. You may want to be a scientist, a researcher. You may want to be an accountant, a, a, you know, a lawyer, a business person, or whatever. I mean, computer person or you know, just keep, keep, you have to stay flexible and open-minded and, and, you know, um, as you grow and mature, you know, you, you, you have to, you want to pursue what interests you most. And the other thing I, I tell students all the time, don't, don't go into any particular profession just because you think you have to, or because your, your parents, you know, want you to be a doctor or whatever. Right. That's not the right way to decide a profession. You have to decide, you know, based on your own interests and, and, and skill sets and, and, because you're going to be doing it potentially for 40, 50 years. I mean, yes. So, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a long, it's a long haul. I did, I did 17 years after high school of training yeah, it's a, to become a, a kidney transplant surgeon. So it's a long, you have to be persistent and dedicated and accept delayed gratification. It, it, all, all these things are very important. It, it, exactly. So now yeah. what, what made you focus on health disparities in the African-American community? 
So yeah, that's under so. And I, and I'm gonna, I, I and, and actually I'm gonna put, yeah. throw in the other question too. What made you yeah. focus on health disparities in the African American community, and what is a health disparity, and what are some of the contributing factors? So the thing is, when I was in college or you know high school, college, medical school, internship, residency, kidney transplant fellowship, I don't ever. I can honestly say that I don't ever remember re- having received a lecture or any formal education or primer on, on health care disparities. Um, and I know a lot of these young students now, I mean, it, it's part of the curriculum where they, they're educated about health disparities. So health disparities is a, it's a situation that we see in healthcare outcomes or the, where a certain segment of the population has a higher incidence of a certain disease states, chronic disease states, uh, and poor outcomes. And, and, you know, an example of a healthcare disparity is a higher incidence of high blood pressure, hypertension in African American populations compared to the majority, you know, Caucasian American, um, you know, uh, population, higher rates of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, you know, black men develop and die from prostate cancer at twice the rate of, of compared to their white male counterparts. You know, these are what we call healthcare disparities. Uh, African Americans have four to six times greater incidence of developing kidney disease. Um, again, we see health disparities essentially in every area of medicine, um, men, women, children, and typically the, the group that most likely experiences these health care disparities, health inequities are um, black and brown people, especially African Americans compared to their white counterparts. So after I finished my kidney transplant, training i you know when you when you're in a fellowship training you you focus specifically in on on your area of, of of training and mine was kidney transplantation and after i finished my formal training i was able to step back take a broader view of the, of the medical landscape mm-hmm. and then i learned about an initiative it was a department of health and human services initiative um, put forth by president bill clinton at the time it was called healthy people 2000 and that was an initiative designed to address and eliminate, I think it was a list of 20 health or 22 healthcare disparities um, by the year uh, 2000. This was around 1996 when I first became aware of this initiative. Ah. Well, well, the, the disparities were not, you know, didn't end in 2000. Then right. President Bush had a Healthy People 2010, Obama 2020, Trump 2030. But so, yeah, I, I didn't really fully appreciate it, but... Then I, I looked around. I was at, at, at Cleveland Clinic. I spent, you know, um, 28 years at Cleveland Clinic as a urologist, kidney transplant surgeon. I looked around. I said, well, you know, we, we should we should be participating, you know, fully at the clinic in terms of, of of getting involved in this Healthy People 2000 initiative. And I went to the chief of staff at the time, a guy named Dr. Rob Kay. He he actually was a pediatric urologist. And I discussed with him my idea to create a, an entire Cleveland Clinic Center for Minority Health. We put our heads together. We decided that we should probably start out off more focused. Uh, you know, do, you do, when, when starting a, an initiative, a lot of times you want to have successes in one area, then you expand. And so then I, I, I and this is an interesting story. So my family and I, it was, I have to go back, I think it was like in 2003, 2000 at the end of 2000 it was early 2003 we took a we went on um spring break trip um to um 
it's called the National Freedom Underground Railroad Center in mm. Cincinnati. I don't know if you've been down there. I've, I've heard of it, though. It's, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, it's, it's like a civil rights museum. It, it's right. The depictions of the slaves, how they were treated, their, their plight. I mean, to, to see the sha- It's one thing to read about it in a right. book or see it on TV. Yes. <clears throat> to see the shackles, the actual... They, these weren't replicas. These were the reconstructions of some of the houses they lived in. Yes. They had pictures and postcards. I hate to say it, just way of lynchings. I mean, you got you know, got to yeah. be honest. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and it turned my stomach. It made me angry. And as I w- when I was growing up, my father always told me nobody cares about black men. And uh, you know, when I was younger, I didn't quite understand what he was talking about. But as I as I grew and matured, I knew exactly what he was talking about. Mm, yes. He said it's always your responsibility to use the education you've been fortunate enough to have received to give back to the community. And, you know, so, I mean, again, he, he had big, big shoes to fill. He was always very proud of me, my siblings, but a lot of pressure because you always would feel like you, you weren't doing enough. You had to do more. He, he pushed you to do more. Yeah. When he was, I think, 17 years old or 18 or whatever in Indiana, we're, we're going back in the 40s, you know, he was the, there was a picture of him in the newspaper signing the mayor of the white mayor up to be a member of the NAACP. I mean, wow. he was on the cutting edge. You know, you heard about unsung heroes. There were people, countless people like him. Of course, we have the, the great Dr. King and, and Ro, you know, Rosa Parks and others. But there were many people behind many, them that many. were doing things that, you know, nobody's aware of. And, That's and right. So, again, he, he had certain ex- expectations, admonitions that, that he placed upon me. So I remembered nobody cares about black men. This experience I had at this National Freedom Center in Cincinnati, I recommend everybody go down there. It it hit me, and I learned about Healthy People 2000. It hit me that I needed to do something, use my skill sets to do something to try to make a difference. And so that's how I came up with this minority men's health fair. And again, people say, well, why is it just for men? Well, it's um, technically, you know, women can come also. And again, it wasn't. It wasn't just for minority men. It was open to everybody, regardless of race or ethnicity. But we wanted to target black men because they have the highest incidence of these health care disparities, lowest life expectancies, you know, out of any group in the country. And also as urologists, urologists, we treat women, but we're also um, subspecialists with respect to men's health. So it was a natural um, thing that, that we would develop a, a program for men's health. Our initial target disease was prostate cancer, ah. you know, which I mentioned kills black men twice as often as white men. The, the thing about prostate cancer, if we as urologists, primary care provider, if we can detect it and diagnose it in early stages, it's potentially 100% curable. So these excessive death rates, a lot of them are attributable to late, you know, later stages a presentation, later diagnoses when, when the, the disease is, you know, more advanced. But, um, so yeah, so that, that's how this, this minority men's health fair came about. Started in 2003, the first year we had about 35 men show up. Over the years, I, I understood that I needed to go out, become part of the community. Again, I'm not from Cleveland. I, I, I it was a learning curve on my part. I had, I developed a lot of, um, Relationship in the community, Reverend Theopolis Cavanus, uh, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss, uh, Dr. Larry Macon. I mean, I could name, you know, Dr. McMichael, a lot, lots of them, uh, Pastor Harris. I mean, just so many of them. I can, I'd have to have a whole, and, and I, I, I acknowledge each one of these individuals uh, in my book. Um, I, 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 but they, yeah, no, they no. made it possible. That, yes. 
No, no, no. Go on. I, help I, us. Yes. No, no, I was going to say that the Minority Men's Fair, this is your 19th year, and you've served yes. over 35,000-plus citizens. So when is the right. event for 2022 coming up? Yeah, so um, so now I, I, I just recently transitioned over to the Metro Health uh, Medical Center. I'm the medical director for equity, inclusion, diversity. And April the 28th, 2022, uh, we're going to conduct our, our Metro Health Minority Men's Health Fair three Metro Health locations. It's all simultaneous, 5 p.m. until 8.30 p.m. Our Metro Health main campus in our outpatient pavilion, our Broadway Metro Health campus, and our Cleveland Heights campus, which is Severance Circle. Um, a variety of free community health screenings, uh, health examinations, uh, health education. We have already about 450, 500 Metro Health volunteers. We're having outside Wonderful. community organizations, exhibitors, um, social services, uh, you know, so it, it's it's a remarkable opportunity. We, we're encouraging people, you know, to, to take advantage. I mean, you know, there, there are a number of people. And so people get the, so this is not, we're not, it's all free. We're not going to be, uh, people ask me all the right, time. charging people. Do you, do you need health insurance? No, no health insurance. We're not taking any health inform, insurance information. It's all free. Well, you know, Dr. Um, Maudlin, in, tw- in 2011, I, I volunteered for uh, one of your Minority Men's Health Fair. Yeah. And it is, it's a wonderful event. I tell people mm-hmm. about it all the time. You have wonderful resource people there. So it is a wonderful, wonderful event. Yes. And I do want mm-hmm. to get back to your new position as the yes. medical director of the Office of Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity at Metro Health Hospital. In, in this capacity, what is your mission that you want to do at Metro Health Hospital and for the community? A lot of times I'm, I try to get a lot done immediately, and I, I need to understand. Sometimes it takes a while to, you know, um, so, you know, you, you, I have immediate goals and I have more long-term goals. Um, so in, in this new capacity, well, the one thing is, uh, you know, I, my charge is to, um, you know, help organize and, and uh, operationalize the, the minority men's health care, which we're doing. And again, I, I don't claim to be doing this by myself. There's no way in the world. I, again, it takes hundreds of volunteers. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. You have a lot of people that have turned out and helped you over the years. Yeah, Dr. Boutros, our CEO, supportive, Dr. Boulanger, Alan Neville, who is our senior VP of, of, of equity. I mean, a number of people have just stepped up and, and you know, been so supportive. So, I mean, that, that that's uh, very gratifying. I also have a role in terms of trying to uh, achieve um, or create what I call a multicultural health center of excellence. I, I I started a lot of this at the clinic, and, and I'm implementing um, in similar fashion uh, at Metro uh, a number of health equity programs through all the different clinical departments, uh, specialties of medicine and, and surgical subspecialties. You know, for example, a minority stroke center, um, a multicultural lung health center, kidney hypertension, cardiovascular, dermatology, you know, dermatology skin center of excellence, yes. skin and hair center of excellence. So because there's a health, like I said, there's health disparities in every branch of medicine. So even though Metro has been serving the community 186, 187 years, what we want to do is is demonstrate uh, in all sincerity to the community that even though we're known for serving the community, we're, we're developing these dedicated health equity centers to place front and center um, innovative ways in which to improve health outcomes in these minority and multicultural populations. I say, I say that, you know, this is a, um, this is a critical um, point here is that you you look at the diversification of America, 
I think it's estimated in the next 20 years or so, minorities will become the majority. So this is a, it's critical that, you know, not only Metro, but that the medical community nationwide uh, get a better handle on addressing these healthcare disparities to improve exactly. health outcomes, because pretty soon it's going to be the majority percentage of the population that has greater incidence of chronic disease states and, and lower life expectancies. That, that's going to affect the overall health of the nation, the overall productivity of, of the nation. Yes. And, uh, you know, so, no, th- this is a, it's a, a, a matter of national security, as I'd, I'd like to put it, that, that, that this be front and center. Yes. I think the, the federal government, um, you know, the corporate world, the f- philanthropic world, the, the healthcare sector, we all need to come together and realize that, that this, is, uh, this is a crisis state. Yeah, and we we need to put all of our collective resources and, and intellectual capacity together. So, I mean, again, you know, it's going to affect the overall productivity and, and health of the nation if we don't. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Which actually goes to because you covered a lot of my you covered answered a lot of my questions already. But yeah. one one been particular. I have two. Why is community outreach and engagement important to you as a citizen as well as being a physician? Yeah. Well, I forgot to mention one of my roles in this position at Metro is also to promote more diversification in the healthcare workforce and yes. help create pipeline programs, mentor students. That's and, very and important. So, yeah, so we're trying to recruit more you know, doctors of color. Again, and it relates to your next question about, you know, why is community outreach important to me? Um, you know, if we want to have a positive impact in, in terms of promoting health equity and eliminating health disparities, you know, we as healthcare providers need to develop uh, better trusting relationships and a, and a better rapport with, with the community in which we are, are serving. You know, and, and again, this is in full recognition that there's a lot of distrust uh, that the black community has, and True. rightly so when it True. comes to Doctors, nurses, healthcare institutions, medical researchers, Tuskegee syphilis experiment is just but one example. Yes. Uh, Henry, 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 yeah, that's another huge example. Yes. Yeah. So, so we we need to also understand that we can't do this work in in silos. So, I mean, we we may have the best doctors that, that are ready and willing to serve individuals, but if we can't relate to them, you know, in a culturally sensitive way, non-biased way, then they're not going to come in to take advantage of the opportunities, the healthcare screenings that we're, that we're providing. Uh, we need to educate the community about the importance of participating in clinical research trials. So, I mean, the example is not every medication, you know, is metabolized in the same way in people of different races or ethnicities. There are differences, even though Genetically, we're more similar than we are dissimilar. Some of these subtle differences, actually, there's an enzyme in the liver called P450, and that enzyme in the liver actually helps metabolize certain medications. Well, African-Americans, in, in many instances, um, have a more active P450 you know, enzyme system. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in the field of kidney transplantation and administration of anti-rejection medications, Sometimes that means that African Americans, blacks will metabolize anti-rejection medications more quickly. Mm. And if the physicians aren't aware of this, then and if we don't have enough people in research studies to design newer, more effective anti-rejection medications, then you're going to continue to see a higher incidence of organ transplant rejection 
and people of color. I mean, this is just one example. There's another, there are other examples in treating heart failure. So that's why it's important to become part of the community. Community outreach is so important. It's important to develop partnerships with the clergy, elected officials, other influential individuals in the community, but because we, we need them, you know, as partners to help spread the word about the, the importance of preventative health screenings. Uh, you know, there, there's important health information that everybody needs to know. Black men need to know that they need to start screening for prostate cancer at age 40, 15 years than your typical um, Caucasian American male mm. because of the higher incidence. So, so there are differences even in screening recommendations based on the race, ethnicity uh, of individuals. Um, <clears throat> we do know that most of the health disparities, and I, you know, I should mention this, are, are not necessarily related to race, but more so to what we call the social determinants of health, where you live, you know, yes. if you're impoverished, don't have access, live in a polluted area, toxic area, right. type Correct. of, you know, work that you face, you know, living in food deserts, things like that, lack of education. You know, these, these contribute to a lot of the healthcare disparities we see. We, there was an article, I don't know, in the Plaindale a couple of years ago. The, the, the title was, uh, where, where, you, where you live determines how long you live and, and your zip code right. is more important to your longevity than your genetic code. Exactly. And, and that's based on data. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's why community outreach is so important. We, we need to get out and listen to the community, what, what their needs are. But we also need the community to, to hear us. And, I, you know, I always say everybody, you don't have to have a MD or an RN degree. Everybody can be a healthcare provider. The people listening to your program, we're, we're, we're all healthcare providers. All you have to do is pass uh, health information, medical information along to somebody. Oh, have you gotten your, your colonoscopy? Have you exactly. gotten your, your prostate check? You know, exactly. have you gotten your blood pressure check? Do you know what the signs or symptoms of a stroke are? You know? Yes. That. Um, so, I mean, everybody can be a health care provider, even children. That, it's, that's so very important. Now, I've got, a, I've got a kind of little lightning round on some next, <laughs> my next question. Mm -hmm. Please share yep. your thoughts about the following as it relates to African Americans mm -hmm. and the public in general. So the first one is, I'm going to read them all, and then you can give the quick bullet points on them. The connection between hypertension and kidney failure. What is hereditary cardiac amyloidosis? And I definitely listened to you so I can pronounce mm -hmm. that properly. Mm -hmm. The importance mm -hmm. of organ donation and the African-American biorepository. Now, I want to go back mm -hmm. to the connection between hypertension and kidney failure because that's how I became full transparency. I became a mm -hmm. patient of yours at one time. I don't know if you recall, mm -hmm. I came to you because I had kidney failure during a heart catheterization mm -hmm. procedure. And you, mm -hmm. you are who you say you are. You walk the walk. You talk the talk. You gathered all my medical information. You assessed what had happened to me, provided information that really had not been given to me, which is definitely a health disparity, made sure I got the proper information and knew how to care for myself. And I've always been eternally grateful for you to that. Mm. And I just want to tell people that. So no, um, the first the first one I said, the connection between hypertension and kidney failure, because that's not really talked about in the black community. That you, That's what happened to mm. me. My, my blood pressure was up. My kidneys, were, my kidneys started failing. Mm. Yeah. So kidney failure and diabetes, a lot of times combined or isolated or the leading cause of, of kidney disease and kidney failure. Um, hypertension, you know, is high blood pressure. We, it's the un, it's um, called the silent killer. Yes, it, it can is. lead to heart attacks, strokes, kidney failure. So absolutely peripheral vascular disease. Um, so yeah, that, we need to learn more about uh, high blood pressure, hypertension, and, and kidney disease. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, hereditary cardiac amyloidosis. So, so that is a rare disease um, condition, which in late stages, uh, and, and so it occurs primarily in, in African Americans. Um, it's a hereditary condition. There's, there are different types. Um, there's a hereditary and non-hereditary, but the hereditary is more common in African Americans. And untreated, it can lead to heart failure. And in late stages, the physicians, it's hard to determine whether it's from conventional heart failure, which can come from untreated high blood pressure, heart attack, myocardial infarction, or if it's related to this hereditary disease, which is a uh, abnormal dip, um, deposition of a certain type of protein, which is deposited into the heart muscle mm-hmm. and causes the, the uh, heart failure. Um, and people need to know about it. Um, yes. Clinicians, cardi- you know, primary care doctors, cardiologists need to become more aware of it, have it on their, um, you know, differential diagnosis. Uh, their specific testing can actually be used uh, to diagnose it um, because now there's actually a treatment for it, whereas before, before there, was, there wasn't. So, oh, that's good to know. Um, yeah, that's, good that's to very know. important. That's good to yeah. know. Now, the importance of organ donations, particularly for the black community. Well, it's very important because, you know, African-Americans represent about 12.1% of the U.S. population. Yet when you look at those number of individuals who need a kidney transplant or who's on the kidney transplant waiting list, fully a third of the people waiting for a kidney transplant are African-American. And that's a huge disparity, 12% of the population, but 33%, 35% of those in need of a kidney transplant. Yeah. We, we do know that you don't have to be of the same race to be a, to donate to somebody or receive a kidney. Uh, however, we do know that if you are of the same race, that, that your match is going to be uh, closer. And the closer the match, then the better outcomes. The best uh, way to get a kidney transplant is from a living donor. Unfortunately, we do know that many uh, potential living donors for African-American patients in need themselves may actually have diabetes, hypertension, kidney disease. Mm. One thing we do need is to educate more African-Americans about the importance of organ donation. Sign up on that organ donor regist- you know, registry, whether when you're getting your driver's license, there, you can go online and sign up, uh, LifeBank, other, or other ways to do so. Um, because we do need more uh, people registered to be organ donors. There's only about 25,000 kidney transplants a year, there's 100,000 people on the transplant waiting list. So you can see there's not enough kidneys to go around. Yeah, definitely not. Now, the African-American biorepository, what is that? So, yeah, when I was at Cleveland Clinic, I I helped um, establish a biorepository. We we established this through um, individuals participating or or signing up to to give um, blood and urine samples at our health fair and uh, through our minority men's health center throughout the year. And what that was, it was a, um, it was a, um, where we collected blood and urine. We, we stored the, uh, we processed it. We stored it uh, for future use um, by um, laboratory scientists who are performing uh, research studies to under, undercover the, the, the root causes for some of these healthcare disparities. Uh, and, and again, to, to advance medical science, we need, samples. And again, this is all done by, you know, people who signed up, you know, there was a consenting process. Uh, we call it uh, internal review board. It was all, you know, consented. So people knew that they were donating their samples, mm-hmm. but they, they did that out of their, their generosity and, and their willingness and understanding of the importance to advance the science of medicine. We, we need, you know, people of color to, to give samples so that we can use those samples 
um, to uncover the pathogenesis of whether it's diabetes, heart, you know, hypertension, prostate cancer, kidney transplant rejection, that, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, at the time, um, we were the only African-American biorepository in, in the country. Wow. And this was established probably 10, 12 years ago, something, something in that area, that wow. era. Wow. And it's still, yeah. and it's still, in, it's still in existence as well. It, it took, so I, I so I'm, I'm no longer um, running the biorepository now. You know, yes. since I'm over at Metro, but yeah. but yeah, it, it's uh, it's still there. Okay, um, it's under the direction of uh, Dr. Robert Fairchild. I, I worked in his lab uh, uh, when I first went to Cleveland Clinic, his immunology lab. Uh, quality researcher. He's a, a transplant researcher. Okay. So, yes, yes, absolutely. That's awesome. Well, you, you've done so much. I mean, in my preparation for this conversation, just really, you've, you've just done an extraordinary amount of work and, and a lot of good for the black community here in Cleveland. We are lucky to have you. So now, in 2020, you published your book, It Isn't Difficult to Do If You Know How to Do It, which is a great, I have to say, it's a great read. Everyone should buy it. You left no stone unturned in terms of what students and parents need to know. And even if you've been out of school as long as I have, I found it still very helpful for me. You know, so it's it's I've been talking about your book a lot. So it's a it's a great book. And I encourage people really because I read it cover to cover. I really did. Oh, thank you. So how did you choose the title and why did you write this book? And are there more books in progress? So I I, um, was honored in, in 2014 to um, give the commencement address at John Hay High School. Um, and in, in 2015, I, I re- received the uh, Black Professional of the Year. And I pretty much, during my acceptance speech, I, I gave pretty much some of the same messaging that I gave during my commencement address. And what I wanted to do with the students um, was to relate to them some of the lessons I learned growing up in central Indiana uh, from from my parents, my own lived experiences on my long journey to become a kidney transplant surgeon and urologist physician. And the, the reason was, is that, you know, I, I thought back, I said, well, I shouldn't leave this message just with these kids at, you know, this graduation ceremony or the BPA. I said, I should put this and expand this into a book form because I think that I've learned a number of valuable lessons. I, you know, certain amount of wisdom that I want to pass back to these the younger generation acknowledging that I, you know, it, it's, we, you know, we, the older generation, we can't alleviate all obstacles, obstructions, challenges. Yes. You know, it's important that people learn, you know, these young kids learn how to overcome their own challenges and, and, and grow from that. But there are certain things that we, the older generation can impart upon them to help their, their success uh, navigation journey. It's, it's, it's a roadmap. Yes, it is. Uh, a lot of advanced <laughs> things that I learned over my life that I wish, if, if I had known the, you know, a lot of this information <laughs> right. when I was younger. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah, I know. When I was reading your book, I said the same thing. You know, you like I said, you covered everything. You left nothing out. <laughs> yeah, it took me about four to five years to complete this book. It's 385 pages thereabouts. It's yeah. Very uh, actually, comprehensive. Yeah, I've got and, it sitting right yeah. here in front of me. <laughs> it's, oh. it's very comprehensive. And I, and I did a recent interview on the Black News Channel with Sharon Reed. Uh, she's down in Atlanta now. And in preparation, so I wrote the book word for word, and, but I had never actually sat down to read the book cover to cover. But in preparation of that interview, I just recently read it cover to cover. And I, <laughs> I, hate, to, I hate to say it this way, but it imp- I impressed myself. I, I, said, oh, I said, oh, wow, okay, I'm, I'm, learning, I'm learning things uh, right now, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm relearning what I actually had written, you know. But, uh, so 
so so the title came about it isn't difficult to do it if you know how to do it and i say that's that's a very brilliant title and i say that because i didn't come up with a title i would never <laughs> compliment myself like that so my daughter hannah she was about three and a half years old at the time <clears throat> we had a sitter and our, our nanny at the time taking you know taking care of her and, and the nanny was watching her play a video game fast moving joysticks and she was Hannah, that looks very difficult to do. Is it difficult to do? And Hannah kept on playing without missing a beat. She goes, it isn't <laughs> difficult to do it if you know how to do it. <laughs> and that, that, that makes, I mean, that makes so much sense. It's yeah. like what something like Socrates, Socrates would, would say or Plato. Yeah. It, it isn't difficult to do it if you know how, how to, to do it. And it, it just right. means that if, if you know how to do something, if you learn how to do something, you know, it's going to be easier right. know, to do it. And so if we can teach the older generation, if we can teach you know, these young kids who, who have aspirations to achieve success, certain tenets of success, you know, how do you go about getting a college recommendation scholarship? I mean, how do you approach somebody for a recommendation? Yeah. How do you decide which college to go to? Yeah. Um, you know, lose your, and one of the lessons that when I was younger, I was afraid to go up and ask questions and this and that, and, you know, you have to remember these, these teachers, these professors, they, they actually work for you. As a, exactly. For you as a student. That's right. You know, lose your timidity, get out of your comfort zone. I mean, I mean, just, you know, what is the difference between a coach, a mentor, an advocate, a sponsor? I mean, all these, all, this is all information contained in this book. I mean, you know, how do you go about selecting a mentor? Um, you know, just, you know, what do you take to college? There's so much book, there's so much information in this book. Um, I put sticky notes on almost every page. I, I, when I was preparing for my interview. Yeah. I said, okay, let me put some sticky notes in terms of the main, the whole book is practically filled with sticky notes. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, yeah, it's, you, listen, I, in, in reading the book, I mean, everything is underlined, yeah. I've got stars yeah. here and check marks here and, and wrote in, yeah. the, in the side, this is important, you know, but, but I'm going to go to what are your success tips. Now, I wrote them all down, but I'd like you to just, you know, outline some of your success tips for students. Yeah, so... You know, people have asked me, it's, it's very difficult for me to narrow it down, you know, what, what is the most important, I mean, because there, there's so many in here. Yeah, well, actually, um, I wrote them all down. You've got, I, 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 there's eight of them, and then there's this wonderful tip from your dad. Well, really, the, see, the way I see it, there's really hundreds of tips in this book. True, I mean, if true, you, like, <laughs> true. I mean, there, there, true. There's, there's literally hundreds. True. Um, you know, one thing is to always remember from from where you came, from which you came, yeah, it, it, it helps you stay rooted. It helps you remain, you know, empathetic uh, to others. I mean, there, there's, you know, find a mentor, be a mentor, maintain your spirituality. You know, um, this, this saying that you can be whatever you want to be, it's not, that's only part of it. You, you, can, you, can, you can be whatever, you can do whatever you want to do if you're willing to work for it. I mean, yes. that, see, that's the part that a lot of times they leave off. Mm-hmm. And in the book, I said you. I, I talked about my mother, how she believed in herself, even though a lot of the parents, you know, she was the first black school teacher. A lot of the parents didn't want their kids in the black school teacher's classroom, classroom. and yeah. But she she believed in herself. Um, you know, she she had substance in her character, and the same thing with me. I mean, when I was in high school. I was, you know, among the, the top of my class and in, in, in all my classes. Mm-hmm. 
And my guidance counselor at the time, my, my older, you know, siblings, sisters told me that this particular guidance counselor was racist. And, and so I remember actually being in her, in a, in, you know, just me and her, or, you know, she and I were in the room together. Yeah. And she was talking about, well, what do you want to do? And this and that. And I said, oh, I want to be a doctor. And she laughed. She goes, well, you're not physician. You're not doctor material. Well, of course I was. But see, the thing is, I was, I, I became, I knew that she was going to come at me like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I had, I knew that I had possessed the ability. I believed in myself and I was able to bring it. So I didn't let her derail me. See, there are, there are a lot of kids that get derailed because there are a lot of haters out there. I, I never really knew that word until I came to Cleveland. People <laughs> told me about, I, I didn't know what that meant, haters. Yeah. You know? it, it, I, mean, I, I knew what a hater was, but I didn't use I didn't hear it used like that. But, um, but you, but you, but know, you I, can't, yeah. No, 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 yeah. Oh, no, finish your, finish your comment. That was going to, no, I was no, we're just saying, you, you, I was just saying you have to believe in yourself, but you have to bring it. You have to be able to bring it on. You know, you, you know, you can't just, talk of a game you you have to you can't get ahead of yourself you have to focus on your day-to-day responsibilities i mean th- this book talks about um you know you're you're planning your schedules time management skill sets and, and things of that nature and, yeah. and i mean there's so, so many things i mean again they're they're, they're literally hundreds of success tips there, there really um, are you and, know and, in this book and, yeah and and in this the story like i said you're, i mean the book is so well written and 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 so much i can relate to but your story of sharing about going to the counselor i you know i grew up my i lived in uh cleveland and my parents moved to shaker in 1960 when shaker desegregated so i went to ludlow woodbury and shaker oh. class of 74 mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. so i can remember in junior high school at woodbury i had a similar experience i went to my counselor mm-hmm. and i wanted to you know they talk about you know they wanted to find out what you wanted to do. And I told her I wanted to be a dental hygienist. I had the exact same experience. She yeah. she laughed in my face. She, mm. I mean, big old laugh in my face. I walked out of yeah. that office and I did not really talk to a counselor until my senior year. So my senior year at Shaker mm. was told by my counselor that I was not four-year college material. I'd never make it. And then I took my letter of acceptance yeah. to Boston University back to her. I literally made her read it. And I made her speak mm-hmm. to me like the last two months yeah. of school. So I know what mm-hmm. you're talking about because both of my parents were college educated, you know, went to yeah. uh, well, graduated from um, Industrial Parker High in Birmingham, Alabama and went on to Alabama A&M. So you are mm-hmm. quite right in terms of, you know, you got to believe in yourself and and keep it moving. Oh, yes. You know, yes. keep it moving. Now, your book is mm-hmm. also a con- your book is a conversation as well, which I love. It's very conversational. Oh, you ask questions you. of your readers. You ask for feedback. You include the LOLs, the laugh out louds through the book, which I love. Mm-hmm. And you punctuate your paragraphs with the title of the okay. book, which I think is great. So why did you decide to write in this style? So the thing is, I, you know, and again, I'm not boasting, but I, I've always one of my streets has always been in, in uh, prose, you know, ability to write. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's because of my background. When I was in high school and in, in college, I, I trained in, in Latin, um, you know, Latin. Yes. And, and that actually helps in English composition, um, you know, very well. I mean, in translating, you know, the, the Latin, you know, literature. And it just, it, it just complements the English language and, and uh, helps, you know, helps one uh, be a better writer. Um, so that's always been a, a strength. Uh, but in, in the book, I talk about the importance that, that students um, get educated in a foreign language. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. But to, to see, and, and uh, the, um, 
one reason I, I selected her to write in this style in terms of the conversational is based on two books I read by a local author, uh, George Fraser. Yes, very familiar. Um, success runs, runs in, in our, our race, race and in race. Yeah, in the race for success. Yeah, and I remember when he used to have the success net meetings uh, here in Cleveland. I attended a few of them. Mm -hmm. Continue. Yes. No, no, but but no, it. it um, and I love I love because that that's the conversational style in which he wrote and writes, and that just kind of resonated. It, it made me more interested in, in reading a book. I mean, it, yeah. it wasn't just him telling me stuff. Or, right. Um, I actually have a workbook coming out uh, to complement this. It's a it's a it's a journal and a workbook. It should be out in the next month or so, hopefully, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Okay. Um, to complement, so this, so this book, it isn't difficult to do it if you know how to do it. It's really a, it's really a guide. It's a manual. I, I think it's a reference whereby students should, you know, not only read it once, but they should keep it at their side and Absolutely. then refer back to it time and Absolutely. time again. Yes. But the workbook's going to allow them to take notes as they read each chapter and the, the, the book doesn't have to be read from, you know, you can read chapters out of order or whatever. I mean, I, I would recommend that you read it from, you know, front to back, but I think it's important to take notes. And, and so there's one tip in the book, for example, and I, I learned this through research that if you have a goal, if you write down your goal, yes, physically write it down, you could write it down on, you know, type it on a computer, but the best way to do it is write it on a note card, you know, tape it to someplace where you can look at it every week, you know, and that way, and actually research shows that if you actually physically write down your goal, you're more, you have a greater chance of succeeding in your goals than if you just keep it in your head. Exactly. I, 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 I would you agree know? with that. I, I would, yeah. I would agree. I would definitely agree with that. Now, mm -hmm. now you sit on the board of health legacy of Cleveland, which I, yes. when I read about it, that's a great organization. That's one of the things I love about doing this podcast because it leads me to find other wonderful information. So if you could just talk about what is the mission of that organization. Yeah, so it's a, a mentorship organization. Um, and the original intent was to provide mentorship for students who want to go into medicine or dentistry. But, you know, we're, we're in the process of actually expanding that that mission, we want to provide scholarships and mentorship, you know, for, for people who want to go into the health professions, but we're going to expand it beyond just medicine and dentistry and into nursing, you know, business administration, or healthcare, you know, administration. And it also focuses on getting, getting black students into medicine <clears throat> and dentistry. Correct. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, yes. Yeah, it's a pipeline program. Yeah. Correct. Yes. You have mentored and trained numerous students, interns, and residents. What words of wisdom do you have for students who are interested in a career in medicine or who, have, who are trying to decide what they want to do in life? So, you know, growing up, I, I never saw any black physicians. My black physician role model was Denzel Washington and, and on the TV show St. Elsewhere. St. Elsewhere was one of my favorite shows, too. <laughs> yeah, most young people don't even remember it. It was, yeah, it was, it was outstanding. It was a, it was um, a great show. Yeah, so I would say try to get a behind-the-scenes look at whatever profession that you're seeking to enter. You know, that's very important because what you may think of the profession may be, may be significantly different I mean, from a day-to-day, -day, you know, perspective, activity in, in which, you know, you're going to be working may, maybe for 40 years or longer. Um, try, try to seek a, a mentor. But again, you have to also not just project into the future, and it's important to project in the future. That's one of my success tips. Visualize yourself mm -hmm. living, you know, your dream. 
but you also have to focus on your day-to-day activities that, that it's going to take to get you to that next level. If you want to be a physician or research scientist, you need to make sure you focus on that chemistry class, that physics class, that mathematics class. Uh, you know, you have to focus on the, the details. You're getting that homework assignment done, you know, right. that that, uh, that quiz. Um, you know, getting, again, it's, it's not a sign of weakness to, you know, to have to get help. I mean, associate with like-minded, you know, students who, have, who also aspire for success. I mean, that, that's another success tip. Yes. You know, very important. I mean, you know, we, we see a lot of black kids get derailed because of uh, peer pressure. Right. It's not cool to, to be studious or ambitious, you know. Right. So, uh, again, the book is filled with all this uh, advice and, and guidance. And, again, not every, you know, it, it, a lot of, it's not all intuitive. A lot of these are advanced techniques that I wish I had only known when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, me, um, me but yeah, too. Yeah. So now, what words of wisdom do you have for parents and guardians who have students considering college or have not decided what they want to do in life? What, what advice do you have for parents and guardians? Yeah, so, yeah, be there for them to give them advice, guidance, but don't force upon them a, a career trajectory just based on your own wishes and, and desires. Um, but, but, but be there in a supportive role. Uh, but also provide them information, you know, you know, reassure them of, of their self-worth and, you know, uplift them. And, 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 you know, parents, guardians, coaches, teachers have a responsibility to help promote, um, uplift these students and, and, and That's right. their, their self-esteem, you know, help, help, um, help them maintain their self-esteem or grow, grow their self-esteem again and, and see, in that in this world out there, and I hate to say it, but it's true. There are people who are going to try to tear down their self-esteem. Absolutely, That's and it's and it's your responsibility as a as a parent, teacher, coach, guardian, mentor, advocate to to uh, you know help build that and maintain that self-esteem. That that's going to be the basis for them believing that they do have the ability to achieve their goals. The other thing is. Um, as your student matures, and again, this is in the book as well, I have a whole chapter dedicated to parents, and you have to remain involved, and you have to adapt, and, and you know, as your, your student gets older, your child gets older, you, you have to find a way to stay in their lives, you yes. know, continue to be as influential. They're going to push you, they're going to push you away, but you still need to, <laughs> you know, be involved. I mean, when I, when I took my son, uh, you know, to his uh, freshman orientation, and it really upset me. They, um, the advisors, they put the parents in one room and separated the students. Of course, I'm, I understand it, but I heard the messaging to the students is that the the advisors, the college um, professors, told the students that you don't have to show your your grades to your parents. Oh, that, wow. You know, you're you're 18 years old. This, yeah, and of course yeah. that's technically true, but, but that should be a family decision. Right. That should be something decided at the family level. And, and see what I even in high school sometimes the the again I'm not naming names or anything we had a great experience you know, through Shaker I mean, yeah. the counselors were great yeah but I've seen situations where they try to distance the the students and from the parents you you got to stay connected you do 
That is very important. My daughter is 27 and we're very, very close. We talk several times a day and she keeps yeah. me informed and I keep her informed about what I'm doing. I share, you know, my podcast and, and people that I talk to. So it's it's very important. So now you yeah. have you have a pastime that that I enjoyed. My dad used to have a garden, but one of your favorite pastimes is growing tomatoes. And where did that come yeah. from and what is your favorite type to grow? So I, I grow all type of tomatoes, uh, heirloom tomatoes, um, big boy, all the different names um, uh, escape me. But I, I, I uh, my mother taught me when I was six years old. I mean, every year they 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 um, come up with you know with an early girl and different 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 uh, versions of tomatoes uh, are available. I, I planted them by you know I started them with seeds before I, I normally. Um, just go to the local garden store, and we'll get a different variety of of, of tomatoes. I usually plant about sixty plants, or maybe wow. more, because well, I've learned over the years the squirrels, the chipmunks, <laughs> the, the, they they take about fifty, sixty percent of them. You know, yeah. so I have to plant more, and I, I you know wind up giving a bunch of them out. But um, but I love tomatoes. Me um, too. A certain way to prepare the garden that I, I've learned over the you know you want to. I love Miracle Grow. <laughs> that, 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 that's a secret. I, I don't think they had Miracle Grow back in, when my grandmother was on the farm, you know. But, yeah. Because uh, my yeah. dad, my no, dad, we, we lived on Albion. We lived at 3025 Albion Road in the Ludlow neighborhood. For We lived in our house for 43 years. And um, my dad used to always grow zucchini and squash in the front yard, <laughs> along with my mother's flowers in the flower garden. And then he grew these uh, tomato plants, and his plants used to grow so tall. And he would grow yeah. collard greens and bell peppers behind the garage because they had great sunlight. So I, I mm-hmm. love tomatoes, yeah. too. And then and when I was li- a resident of Althwaite Housing Estates, City of Cleveland has the grow- the garden program, and so they would give us these wonderful heirloom plants, and, and I would grow uh, tomatoes. And I love the little golden sun. Sunshine. I remember that name, the little golden, smaller tomatoes. So they were delicious. Yeah. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. How can people contact you for your medical expertise, volunteer for the health fair, speaking engagements, mentoring and internship opportunities, and to purchase your book? So, yes, thanks. So, as I mentioned, I'm also a practicing urologist. I still, still see patients uh, at our Metro Health Lyndhurst campus, and on, on Tuesdays and on Fridays, I see patients over at our Cleveland Heights campus, which is uh, Ten Severance Circle. And the phone number for somebody to call and schedule a, a medical urology appointment to see me is area code two one six seven seven eight four three nine one. It's two one six seven seven eight four three nine one. Yeah. So the uh, we're still looking for health fair volunteers. And it, it's very easy for somebody to, to register to sign up to be a volunteer, even to be a, an exhibitor, have an exhibitor table at the health fair. You just go to great. our website, www.metrohealth.org, and then slash MMHF. MMHF stands for Mind Remens Health Fair. So www.metrohealth.org slash MMHF. And on that website, you'll see a tab to register to be a volunteer. You know, quite easy uh, to do so. And we're looking for more volunteers. We um, we would actually encourage that to contact me for a speaking engagement. Um, if there's somebody out there who would um, like uh, me to provide, you know, mentorship, uh, you can contact me on on my cell phone two one six three one two. 
3253. That's 216-312-3253. Uh, we talked about uh, the book I have, the Success Tips book, uh, which is geared towards uh, aspiring students who want to achieve their goals in life. Uh, the, the book title, It Isn't Difficult to Do If You Know How to Do It, it it's easily attainable. Uh, it's up on online on Amazon. It's also on Barnes & Noble. Uh, and, and those uh, people can uh, acquire the book by going to those websites. Uh, it's in selected bookstores. Uh, it's, I know it's in some Barnes and Nobles. I can't tell tell you exactly which ones. It it's in the um, bookstore on on Larchmere. Um, so yeah, but I, I think uh, it's probably easiest just to go online and order the book that way, Barnes and Noble or Amazon. Well, you know, Dr. Maudlin, we have come to the end of our conversation. I'd like to thank you for visiting with us today. This has been a great conversation. I have been looking forward to it. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a great honor. And April 28th, Minority Men's Health Fair. Absolutely. Absolutely. We will, we will definitely promote it and pass the word. I would like to leave our audience with a quote from my guest today. I have been provided opportunities that others didn't have. I am in the position due to sacrifices of people who went before me to use that education I have been fortunate to receive to give back. I would like to thank our audience for coming by today. We appreciate your support. Please join us again as we continue our conversation with Clevelanders who are making positive contributions to their neighborhoods. Visit Neighborhood Connections website to see all of our community engagement activities and opportunities. If you have a great idea and want to do something positive for your community, contact Neighborhood Connections at 216-361-0042 or send us an email at www.neighborhoodgrants.org and like us on Facebook. Stay informed, stay involved, stay connected. I'm Carol Malone, your host. Thank you for joining me today on Neighbor Up Spotlight. Executive producer, creator, writer, host, Carol Malone, co-producer, Lila Mills, engineer, James Kananen, photography, social media, Vince Robinson, graphic artist, Kadrian Hinton. We're just a homemade, handmade podcast from scratch. Please share our positive stories with your neighbors, friends, family, and on your social media. Thank you for listening and neighbor up.